0: If you were here with us last Wednesday, you know we looked at the title I gave it was The Birth of the King, the Son of David. The Birth of the King, the Son of David. And one thing we saw is that in the Christmas narrative, which is in Matthew and in Luke, that both Matthew and Luke give a genealogy for Jesus. It's the only genealogy in the New Testament. It's the only one that ultimately matters, is where Jesus descends from, and then ultimately who is connected to Jesus, who's in Christ, amen? And both in Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, we see that uh, it's very important to them to show that Jesus is a descendant of David, right? In fact... Matthew's genealogy is so much so constructed around David that he's mentioned three times. Everything about the genealogy speaks about the son of David. And Matthew shows that Jesus descends from David through his son Solomon. Well, Luke shows that Jesus has two uh, descents from David, and that he also descends from David through David's son Nathan. Luke is probably recording the genealogy of Mary. Matthew is recording the genealogy of Joseph. We're explicitly told that there. And what we see is this double stamp of approval that Jesus Christ, the little baby, is indeed directly descended from King David. He is the son of David. And so I just want to read again what Gabriel, the angel, told Mary after telling her, you know, that she was to conceive the Christ child. This is what he says in verse 32 of Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So basically... What Gabriel is saying is that Jesus would fully fulfill the covenant that God had made with King David 1,000 years earlier. Remember, we we looked a little bit at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I mentioned how it was the longest speech by God in Scripture since the time of Sinai 500 years earlier, because this is a moment that's really going to mark. History, God has a lot to say to David. He's making a covenant with David. And at the heart of the covenant is this statement that God makes to David. It's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. He says this to David, When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what did Gabriel tell Mary? He said concerning Jesus of his kingdom, there will be no end, right? He says the same thing that God said to David. And the reign of Jesus, we could say in some sense, began in his birth. Right? He is born as the king. This is one reason why when the Magi come and visit him, we don't know how many Magi there were. There might have been a giant caravan. There might have been dozens of them. Well, these great eminent men, they come, and what are we told they do by Matthew? We're told that they worship him. They worship him. Um, but though his kingdom really begins in his birth and he preaches about the kingdom of God and he talks about how it's arrived on the scene because the king is on the scene, The kingdom isn't fully inaugurated until Jesus finishes his work, until he dies as the lamb that takes away our sin on the cross, until he rises again in new creation life, and and until he ascends, and as we're told in the book of Hebrews, that he sits at the right hand of majesty. And this is why he says to his his disciples right before he ascends, he says, all power and all authority has been given unto me, right? Right? He truly is the one who is worthy to sit on the throne. And so he ascends and he sits at the right hand of of majesty, ruling and reigning, his kingdom being fully inaugurated and uh, one that truly will be without any ends. It is in that moment that, as he said before the Sanhedrin, from this time forward, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, referring to Daniel, where he comes on the clouds, to the Ancient of Days, and receives the everlasting kingdom to rule and to reign forever. Notice how Gabriel said that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, who is Jacob? Right? Remember, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then uh, God changed Jacob's name to what? Israel, Israel right? He, he will reign over Jacob, meaning he will reign over Israel forever. Well, who is Israel? Israel. Israel in the New Covenant is anybody who is in Christ Jesus. In fact, the night Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, and he talked about the New Covenant and his blood that was being poured out, after he instituted that meal, he went on a long discourse. It's found in John chapter 13 through 17. And in John chapter 15, in the middle of this discourse, he makes this famous statement. It's the last I am statement. He says, I am what? The true vine. The true vine. And he goes on and he, he talks about that, that his disciples are the branches, right? And one thing we, we recognize, Jesus, he's, he's taking an image that's used throughout the old, all throughout the Old Testament about how Israel is God's vine. Well, Jesus is now saying, I am the true vine. I am the true Jacob. I am the true Israel, right? This is why I've chosen 12 disciples, just, be, just as there were 12 tribes to Israel. So now the new Israel is going to be started around these new, uh, these new 12. And anyone who is connected to Jesus has circumcised hearts. The Holy Spirit fills them, and they become the kingdom of priests. They become, as Paul calls them in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. The church are those who are in Christ. They're the chosen priesthood, the royal uh, generation that Peter talks about in his letters. And so um, when Gabriel says he will reign over the house of Jacob, he is saying that he will reign over his church forever. For it is only those in the church who have eternal life and who will exist for him forever and ever. That's how he will reign, Jacob, forever. Yes, Jesus is king over all of the earth. But only the church recognizes that reign now, and only the church will experience the glory of that reign forever. You know, just as a side note, um, uh, when when he, even when the Bible says something like, uh, "I will bless those who bless you," right? Well, I think you know what what this is primarily speaking about. It's speaking about how God will bless those who bless Jesus okay (laughs) okay he will bless those who bless Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places okay so if we want people to be blessed we don't want them to go and to bless anything else but what but Jesus that's where all their blessings are going to be found okay in Jesus that's where we need to direct people to Jesus you know we saw last Wednesday how throughout the Gospel of Matthew Jesus is called the son of David by the most unlikely of people, right? There are two occasions in Matthew where two blind men are sitting by the side of the road, and they cry out to Jesus, what? Son of David. And then the other time he's cried out to as the son of David is by who? Anyone remember? The Canaanite woman, remember? The one who wasn't even an Israelite. And she cried out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me, just as the blind men do. And what this shows us is, um, you know, that uh, the most unlikely of people understood who he was. And when the average Jew did call out to him as the Son of David, it was during Palm Sunday. And they misunderstood his role as the Son of David. They thought that he was going to come into Jerusalem, that he was going to wipe out the Romans, that he was going to sit out on a throne there, and that he was truly going to reign right there and then. But Jesus had to show them, wait a second, no, that's not how I'm going to reign, guys. Remember what he did when he was on trial before Pilate? And uh, Pilate called him into the praetorium, and he says, are you king? And he says, um... He says, my kingdom is what? My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, he tells his disciples that his kingdom is not one that comes with observation. Rather, he says, the kingdom is within you. Okay, It's primarily a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that conquers people's hearts. It's a king that gives new spiritual life. A king that doesn't defeat natural Philistines and Canaanites like King David did, but rather spiritual Philistines like the demons that Jesus was constantly conquering and ultimately Satan, whom he conquered on the cross. Well, the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David in many ways also pointed forward to him being a new Solomon. And that's what I want to focus on this evening, is how Jesus is not just a new Solomon as the son of David, but he is, in fact, one greater than Solomon. That's what he said of himself, remember that? In Matthew chapter 12 he says, one greater than Solomon is here. So I wanna look at this, King Solomon, this fact that King Solomon is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. You know, the son of David who took his throne after him was who, anyone remember? That was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But David's son who took over was Solomon. But Solomon, remember, Solomon wasn't the oldest of David's sons. In fact, he was the fourth oldest. And there was all this warring and vying for who would take the throne. And then ultimately, you know, Solomon did secure the throne, but, you know, it didn't come without uh, some sort of a wrestling match from his brothers. And, you know, it's interesting that, of course, Solomon was a son that David had by Bathsheba. So, you know, Solomon, he wasn't the son of adultery that David had with Bathsheba. That son tragically passed away after being born. But he, in many ways, reminds us uh, uh, you know, that, that David's line, Solomon reminds us that David's line did not deserve to continue. Why? Because he is forever connected with his mother Bathsheba. What does that mean? It means, oh yeah, we're reminded David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. According to the law of God, the adulterer deserved capital punishment. David should have been killed. According to the law, one who who put Uriah in a situation like that solely to kill him should have been murdered. David deserved capital punishment. So from the very beginning, God fulfilling his covenant to David, that David would have a son who would reign forever, was completely an act of grace, right? In fact, it's coming through the line that most absolutely didn't deserve it. In fact, David's line should have ended right there. God should have slit his throat, right? But we know ultimately how God's grace to David in confronting him with the prophet Nathan caused David to become deeply repentant, right? He became deeply contrite. He recognized how deeply he had sinned against God and his his fellow men and what he had done. And, And in that moment, he wrote one of the great Psalms, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, verse 1, David writes this. He says... And, and he goes on and he, he uh, cries out for the cleansing power of God to come into his life. And, and what does God do? He does. He forgives him. He cleanses David. And ultimately, after that moment of contrition and repentance and forgiveness and healing, we're told that God even restores his relationship with Bathsheba, And ultimately that he wants the Davidic line to go through her and through a child that they would have. Look what it goes on to say in in 2 Samuel chapter twelve, verse 24. This is after the child of adultery died. Then David comforted Bathsheba with his wife, comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, loved Solomon, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So here we see, upon his birth, Solomon is given two names. First he's given a name by David, Solomon, and then God sends a prophet, Nathan, to call him Jedidiah. Now... Solomon, the name Solomon comes from the same exact Hebrew root as shalom. That's why the name Solomon means peace, wholeness. Solomon at his birth is what? He is a prince of peace. Who is Jesus at his birth? He is the prince of peace, according to Isaiah. You know, David was a man of war, right? Until his dying days, he was fighting the Philistines and the Canaanites and expanding Israelites' borders. But after seeing that David had brought rest to Israel on every side and had fought all their battles, well, his son would now not fight a battle at all. And he would reign as a man of peace, as a prince of peace. So he is called Solomon, shalom, wholeness, well-being, peace. Yet though David called his son Solomon, the Lord had another name that he needed to go by. He gave him the name Jedidiah, Jedidiah, Yah. What Yahweh? What does it mean? It means the beloved of Yahweh. So Solomon is not simply David's beloved son. He is Yahweh's beloved son. He is unconditionally loved, loved by Yahweh before Solomon did anything. All he had to do was be popped out of Bathsheba's womb, and he's like Jedidiah, right? This is my son whom I love. In fact, when Nehemiah talks about the reign of Solomon, this is what he says about it in Nehemiah 13, 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. There is no one righteous. No, not one, right? And yet, Nehemiah, he he reminds his hearers, those people who have come back from that captivity. Remember Solomon, who was beloved, beloved by God. Now we know that Yahweh had two names for his son of David in the New Testament. What did the angel Gabriel say? That the child of Mary would be called? You shall name him what? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, which means what? It means Yahweh's salvation. Well, when when God, Yahweh, ultimately addresses Jesus in life, he does it twice. He does it audibly twice. He thunders from heaven at the Jordan River and on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And what does he say about him? What does he call him? He says, this is my son whom I love. Meaning what? This is Jedediah. Right. This is not just Jesus, this is Yahweh's beloved. Jesus, as the Son of David, as the greater Solomon, as the Prince of Peace, is the beloved Son of God who comes to do the greater works than Solomon did. And that's what we're going to look at, what the works that Solomon did, and what Jesus, as the greater Son of David, the greater Solomon, who not just reigns for 40 years like Solomon, but reigns forever and ever, how he fulfills Solomon's life to an even higher extent. So this is um, what what, uh, David uh, said towards the end of his life. It's in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 6. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son... As for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around him. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. <laughs> All right, so God, right, ultimately he gave him the name Solomon too, right? He didn't just give him the name Jedediah, but uh, God gave David the name Solomon to give to Solomon. And, and God had specifically told David that Solomon would be the one who would build a house for his name. Meaning what? You know, all the temples in the ancient world, what did they have? They had little idols in their temple, which symbolized the God they worship. We even see it in the Old Testament, right? right? Like when the, the Philistines carry away the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into the house of their God Dagon, right? Remember? There's an idol Dagon, right? And what happens after Dagon spends the night with the Ark of the Covenant? He falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant and he's worshiping him, right? <laughs> and then they pick him back up and what happens the next night? He falls down and his head is broken off and he's in pieces, right? Well, God's house would not be like the pagan God's house. It wouldn't have some sort of idol in there. Why? Because God wouldn't dwell in the house. In fact, Solomon even talks about that in his prayer of dedication. The Psalms talk about it. The prophets talk about it. About it Not even heavens can contain God. The earth and all of the heavens cannot contain God. God is beyond his creation. He cannot be contained. So what is the house for? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool. So in the Holy of Holies, there is a special manifest presence of God. It's not the fullness of God, but it is where he specially manifests his presence. But primarily it is what? It is a house for his name. This is where they would pray to God. They would pray in his name and God would answer their prayers. Right. This is why we pray in whose name? In the name of Jesus. Right. You have not asked anything in in my name yet, but now ask. Right. And you'll receive. The first point I want to make about Solomon is this. Point number one. Solomon built God's house and shared God's throne. Solomon built God's house and shared God's throne. The temple construction, it's in uh, both um, Chronicles and Kings. We're going to look at, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6, its description. And I want to read, uh, beginning with, with verse 14. It says this, So Solomon built the temple and finished it. Verse 18. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. 22. The whole temple he overlaid with gold. Until he had finished all the temple, also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Verse 29, Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around both the inner and outer sanctuaries with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. Okay, now there's a lot more details than just that. I just read some of them to you, give you a hint of what the temple was like. And the blueprint God gave David and Solomon for the temple, what we see is that it was a very specific blueprint of exactly what they needed to do. Just like the instructions he gave to Moses for building the tabernacle, it was a very specific blueprint of exact instructions of what they were to do. Why? Because every little detail in the temple has some sort of spiritual meaning and significance for God's people. So for instance, when Jesus, who is the greater Solomon, the greater son of David, Builds his temple, it has a lot of the same symbolism that the Temple of Solomon has. For instance, really, when we see Jesus' temple where it's described, it's described in the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22, and in fact, it's not really called a temple, it's called a whole, whole city. But the whole city is modeled after a temple, and really the temple, we're told, is the Lamb himself, is Jesus. He is the temple, as he says of himself in John chapter 2. I am the temple. Well, when you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, uh, you see, for instance, that uh, we're told about very specific measurements, just as we're told about specific measurements for the tabernacle and temple. The entire New Jerusalem, we're told, is in the shape of a cube. We're told its length, its width, and its height, and they're all the same. Well, you know the only thing in the Old Testament that was a cube? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. What is this showing us? It's showing us that God's abode, where his presence dwelled, would now encompass the entire domain of new creation. That his bride would be fully saturated by the presence of God. We have come into the holy place. We have boldly come through the blood of Jesus, right? Also, we're told that the streets of the New Jerusalem are made of gold. What does that symbolize? Well, we just read about Solomon's temple that the holy place was what? It was paved in gold. Who could walk in the holy place? Only priests. Who who is the bride of the Lamb who is in the New Jerusalem? You and me, we have been made a kingdom of priests who serve God, who not can only come into the holy place, but who can come into the holy of holies, the holiest of all. This is why Jesus' temple is far more glorious and far greater than Solomon's ever was. On top of that, the city is just as much a garden as it is a city. Just as Solomon's temple pictured a return to the Garden of Eden with all of the open flowers and the palm trees and the pomegranates and the angels etched on all the walls. So the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, pictures that same return. We see, of course, the book of Hebrews talks about how when we enter worship, we enter it with innumerable angels. In, in the description of the New Jerusalem, we're told about trees that are everywhere. It's an orchard of the tree of life. And they're all at the banks of a river that's flowing through the city that flows from the throne and from the Lamb. The crystal water of life, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that the the leaves of these trees that flow through the New Jerusalem, the Bride of the Lamb, that that the leaves are for the healing of the nation. What does this mean? It means that the church has access to the tree of life in Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit is flowing through the church, and they grab hold of that healing message, and they're supposed to bring that message of Jesus and that river of life to others, That's why at the end of the vision of New Jerusalem, the gates are wide open to all of the dogs and sexually immoral and impure people and cowards and everyone else who's outside the city. And what are they doing? It says the bride and the spirit say, Come, come and drink freely of the waters of life. I got leaves of healing for you. I got Jesus. Come and be restored. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. You can enter into the very presence of God, the holiest of places. Well, that's the temple that Jesus builds. You know, an interesting thing about Solomon's temple is that it's more glorious than Moses' tabernacle. It's larger. The water vessels are bigger. Uh, It goes from glory to glory. That's how history moves forward in Christ Jesus, from glory to glory. And one aspect of the gloriousness under the temple is that Now, it's not just priests who are part of God's dwelling place, like it was under the tabernacle. But now, there's a palace connected. And who who lives in a palace? A king. So now, it's not just priests who are living with God. Now, it's a king who is living with God. And in a sense, God is sharing his reign and his rule with his representative, his king. Right? Right? With Solomon, that's why from 1 Kings 6, 7 and 8, which describes the building of the temple, right in the middle of the building of the temple, we have the section of the building of Solomon's own palace where he would reign. It says this in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. So why is Solomon's palace described in the middle of God's palace, and why does it have all the connections to it? Because God ultimately wanted to make all of his peoples not just priests, but kings. He wanted us to sit with Christ in heavenly places. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians that we will judge the angels. The book of Revelation, Jesus says that those who overcome are destined not just to serve Jesus, but to rule with him. In fact, he says this at the end of Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then he quotes chapter 2 to the church. Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says about you and me. He shall rule Then with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. I think this primarily happens through the power of prayer. We'll get to that when we talk about Revelation. But what is he saying? He's saying that those who overcome, the bride, the church, are not just going to serve him, but they are going to reign with him and they are going to rule with him. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places right we're supposed to be back to the the place that God had created Adam in the beginning right why what did he do he, he gave him a commission a cultural mandate to take dominion to have authority to spread the, his influence around the world well that's what we have in Christ Jesus we're restored image bearers and as we bear the image of Christ we can rule in a way, we can reign in this life through the abundance of his grace, through the gift of his righteousness, and um, why? Because we're connected to his presence, we're connected to his house, and that's how we reign. After Solomon, the beloved man of peace, built the temple, what happened next? Well, he gave a dedication prayer. But before he did that, God shows he was well pleased to Solomon following the blueprint he gave him, so he filled the house. 1 Kings 8, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What is this? This was a sign to everyone watching And they're thinking, I'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, this is the exact same thing that happened to Moses. What happened at the very last verse of Exodus? Moses finished constructing the tabernacle, and the same exact thing happened. Him and Aaron came out of the holy place, and the glory of the Lord filled the place, and the priest couldn't go in there because the glory was so heavy. So what does Solomon do? He stays in the courtyard of the temple, and he gets on a great podium, and and he falls on his face, and he prays, okay? He has a long prayer. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. And part of the prayer, he talks about how God's house among Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the entire world. It wasn't just for Israel. It was supposed to be a house of prayer that was for all nations. That's why when Jesus comes in the Gospels, and he Uh, you know, brings his eight woes against the Pharisees in the temple courts and he overturns the money uh, changers' tables, what does he tell them? He says, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Look what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, verse 41. He says this to the Lord, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name." Listen to that. Listen to his confidence. For they will hear of your great name, and your strong hand, and your outstretched arm. They're going to hear the gospel. And when he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place. That's ultimately where where he dwells. "And, And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So he, Solomon's primary task, what he is most known for throughout the scriptures, is that he is the one who builds the house for God, who ultimately would be a house of prayer for all the nations, for everybody. Well, this is the second point I want to make, point number two. Jesus is the greater son of David who built God's house and will share his throne forever, inviting us to share his throne with him. you know that? I mean, this is a powerful truth, okay? Jesus is the greater son of David who built God's house. I will build my church and he will share his throne forever. That's what he said in Revelation, did he not? Inviting us to share his throne with him. So he's sharing the throne of the Father, and then he invites us to share in his throne with him. Now, you know what uh, today is? Today is what, the 13th? And what uh, Jewish festival are we in right now? Anyone know? Hanukkah. You guys are right, wow. You know what? Hanukkah... While um, it's not a festival that we see commanded by God and set up by God in the Old Testament, it is a festival that is prophesied about by God in the book of Daniel, and ultimately a festival that we see Jesus observing in the Gospels. In John chapter 10, he goes to Jerusalem, we're told, for the Feast of Dedication. What was the Feast of Dedication? It was Hanukkah. What does the word Hanukkah mean? It means Dedication, okay? And so, it recalls the day when the second temple, which had been desecrated for several years by unfaithful priests and utilized for wicked pagan rituals by the conquering Greeks, was recaptured by some Jews and rededicated for the purpose of worship to the Lord. Um, So basically, you know... um, Basically, what happens is <laughs> uh, Antiochus IV, he comes in, he does a bunch of despicable things. He um, you know, outlaws a bunch of uh, the scriptures, he outlaws circumcision, he, he bans the festivals being observed, he has a pig that's sacrificed on the bronze altar in the temple, he erects a pagan altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, he allows uh, prostitutes to solicit their services there like they did at the temples in Greece. Um, and things were really, really bad in Jerusalem, right? And so, the, obviously, the Jews who were believing Jews, they were horrified by everything that was happening, and um, they probably knew that, hey, maybe this is our moment to fulfill part of God's prophecy. Why? Because they had the scroll of Daniel. And 300 years earlier, Daniel had given a very specific prophecy through an angel. You know who, what angel it was? It was Gabriel. And Gabriel, he gave this 300-line prophecy at the end of Daniel from chapters 10 to 12. And um, what we see is that um, in Daniel chapter 11, when Daniel's given an in-depth history of the time from Cyrus, the Persian king, to the time of Jesus Christ, he talks about the reign of Antiochus IV. He calls him a vile person and one who sweeps away the prince of the covenant, which was a reference to the high priest. What did Antiochus IV do? He swept away the only righteous line of the high priesthood, Onias III. He was of the lineage of Zadok. Ezekiel said that the priesthood from Aaron could only continue through the line of Zadok. Antiochus IV, he got... Rid of that. That, in a way, was the abomination, abomination that brought desolation to the temple. No longer was there a true high priest to serve in the temple. Well, this is what Daniel says about his reign in Daniel 11:32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. So, you know, it talks about all these terrible things that will happen to them, you know, they'll fall by sword and flame and captivity. Well, during the time of Antiochus, 40,000 Jews were killed and many were sold into slavery. And what was the response to all of this death and captivity? Daniel said, a little help will arise and many would join the cause. Who was Daniel speaking about? He was, or Gabriel speaking about, he was speaking about a guy named Judas Maccabeus. His name Maccabeus was simply a nickname that meant the hammer. He was the hammer country Jewish boy who was going to make things right. And he led a band of fed up Jews to drive out the Greeks and recapture the temple. And there uh, is a couple Jewish books that were written about some of his exploits. They're called 1st and 2nd Maccabees. They're not inspired books, but they're interesting Jewish history, okay? And this is what I just want to read about what he did. It's in 1st Maccabees 4. It says this in, in 38. He says, There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket, or as as on one of the mountains. They saw also the chambers of the priests in ruins, verse 48. They also rebuilt the sanctuary in the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple." Um, what's interesting to me is that there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant here. This is why there's some you know, question about whether the Ark was even in the Holy of Holies, whether it was ever brought back from Babylon uh, during the second temple period, during the time of Jesus. I'm, I'm not sure, actually, I need to do more study on that. It goes on to say this, uh, then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand, and these gave light to the temple. Verse 56, so they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days, and joyfully offered uh, burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice of well being and thanksgiving offering. They decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and fitted them with doors. So, this was an eight day celebration, just like um, the first uh, temple under Solomon was celebrated for eight days. It's the number of new creation. And um, what is being happening here is a rededication. It's a rededication, but Daniel, Gabriel, to Daniel, says it would only be a little help. Why? Because they didn't fully restore things. In fact, they never restored the Zadokite high priest. They never restored Onias III back to his priesthood. So they might have driven out the Greeks, they might have driven out some of the idolatry, but they didn't get things back to where they really needed to be. So that's why Gabriel says it's only a little help. What Israel really needed was a great big help. (laughs) And, And who would be the great big help that would come? Jesus. Jesus. And that brings us to the Christmas story. Why? Because the Magi who come and they worship the baby Jesus. You know when they come and worship Jesus? What day they come? They come at Hanukkah. They come at Hanukkah. Now, I'm thoroughly convinced that they do. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that. But when you follow the details of the star in Matthew chapter 2, and there's nine details given, we can be pretty certain, I think very, very certain, if you want a a detailed look at what the star was and why I believe uh, the Magi visited December 25th at 2 BC during the middle of Hanukkah, you can look at my... Christmas devotional, I have a whole appendix just devoted to that subject. And what happens is, the Magi who are following the star uh, from uh, Persia, they they get to Jerusalem uh, during December and uh, Matthew says that the star stops over Bethlehem. Well, what happens uh, is that the star is the planet Jupiter, and it's its movements for about 18 months through the night skies. And what happens is that Jupiter, it stops its motion. It no longer becomes a wandering star, and it stops on December 25th at 2 BC. How does it stop? It goes into something called retrograde motion. It's gonna to begin to go backwards, and it does in a few days later. But it looks like it motions stop in the sky, and when you're in Jerusalem in December 25th on 2 BC and you're looking at uh, um, Jupiter, you know where it is? It's exactly above Bethlehem. So they had just heard that the scribes say that the Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. They see the star say, yes, it's right here, it's in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem and they worship the baby Jesus. And what do they do? They give him gifts. Let's read Matthew 2, 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were all very expensive gifts. In fact, frankincense and myrrh was uh, worth more than gold by weight. And we're not told how many magi there were. In fact, there were probably far more than three magi, and they probably had a caravan of gifts. I think they loaded Jesus with a lot of resources <laughs> that helped him not just in his fleeing journey to Egypt, but even helped him in uh, you know, his, his difficult circumstances growing up, and you know, maybe even ultimately some of his ministry later. I don't know. I don't know how much money they gave. I'm sure he used it as a blessing to other people as well. But they give him a lot of, they give him a lot of resources right? He's he's blessed. And the first gift was gold. What do we see in, in Solomon's temple? Everything in the temple was overlaid with gold. Well, when the Magi come during the temple of rededication, what do they do? Jesus is the new temple, right? He is the temple that shall be destroyed and built again in three days. And they present him with gold. What did the Maccabees do after they rededicated the temple? They put Gold crowns all around, right? Well, that's who the Magi are recognizing. Yes, this is the king of the Jews. This is the new temple, Jesus. The second gift they gave was frankincense. Incense was burned every morning and evening in where? In the temple. Why? It was a picture of the people's intercession. Here, Jesus is being recognized as that great high priest. They had not had a high priest. A valid high priest for about 200 years, or 167 years. And now they're saying, here is the true high priest. The high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who will rule and reign forever. And he is our great intercessor. And then what do they give? They give myrrh. Right? Myrrh. This is what the Bible says about Solomon and the first temple. 1 Kings ten twenty-four. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Psalm says this about the king, Psalm 45, 8. All your garments are scented with myrrh. That's a psalm about the king. At Jesus' death, what does um, Nicodemus bring to Jesus? hundred pounds of spices and a bunch of myrrh. What did the myrrh signify? That all of his garments were scented with myrrh. Well, it pictured that Jesus was born to die, right? It pictured the fact of what Jesus had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? That's who they're worshiping. So he's giving gold, he's giving frankincense, and he's giving myrrh during the middle of the temple rededication festival. This is why John says when he and his prologue to his gospel, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word dwelt among us, a lot of translators say the the most literal translation would simply be, and tabernacled among us, and templed among us. The Word of God became flesh, and he became the new temple. And his bride, who is connected with him, ultimately, we share in that temple. Amen? The last point I want to make real quick is this, point number three. Jesus, the King of Peace, wants to do great things in our lives. He wants us to come to him, and he wants to grant our requests. You know, Solomon's rule was the greatest time of prosperity and peace Israel ever experienced in the Old Testament. Not one war or internal conflict broke out for 40 years. There was joy, there was safety, there was rest, there was feasting. Their borders expanded to the borders God promised Abraham and Moses. The promises of God were coming to fruition. 1 Kings 4.25 says this about his reign. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. You know, when the prophets speak about the restoration of Israel, they commonly talk about how each man will sit under his vine and his fig tree. Why? Because it's a picture of restoration to the reign of peace, to the reign of rest, to the reign of joy. And when does that reign come? It comes in the person of Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ that we have peace, that we have rest, that we have joy. What did the angels sing about the little baby Jesus? They sang, peace on earth. The greater Solomon is here. Goodwill toward men. Right before ascending to his heavenly throne, Jesus said, what? My peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He told his disciples, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, I want to end with one person who came to Solomon's kingdom. It was a Gentile, a queen. This is what we're told in 1 Kings 10, verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built. Think about seeing people seeing Jesus and his church. The food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. She's in awe. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. "'Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants "'who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. "'Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, "'setting you on the throne of Israel, "'because the Lord has loved Israel forever. "'Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. "'Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, "'spices in great quantity, and precious stones.' there never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. You know, spices is a picture, of course, of prayer, prayer, prayer. And and here is an abundance of prayer, and we'll see an abundance of request. In verse 13, it says this, Now Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked besides what Solomon had given her, according to the royal generosity or the royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. (laughs) Isn't that cool? You know, here is this man reigning in peace. His word is going out to the ends of the world. And the, the messengers aren't even that great. They can't even tell half the glories of how good the king really is the king, the son of David really is. So she has to come and see for herself, right? And she comes, she makes the journey to Jerusalem and her spirit leaves her. She's in so much awe of how great Solomon's kingdom is, how great the wisdom is that drips from his mouth that I, I'm sure she just wanted to stay there, right? And what does she do in recognizing how Powerful and wise and good and awesome, this son of David is. She makes requests of him, right? Wow, what does the Bible say? You have not because you ask not. Jesus said, "Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open." We are Romans eight says co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ. The Father told the elder son, everything I have is yours. The King of kings, the son of David, Jesus Christ is currently reigning on high. And he reigns in such a way that he wants people from every nation to come to him just like they did during the time of Solomon. And when we come in faith, when we come asking, When we come with our requests, when we come with our desires, when we understand His work inside of us, we'll truly be amazed by the transformation and the blessing that He can bring, right? We'll be in awe. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, right? All we ask like the Queen of Sheba asked Solomon... Or think, like, whatever she desired Solomon gave her. All that we ask her, as NIV says, all all that we can imagine. According to his power that is at work in us. We're told that Solomon gave her according to the royal generosity. According to the royal bounty. How does Jesus give to you and me His church? Well, Paul says in Philippians, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Just as Solomon gave according to the royal bounty everything uh, the queen of Sheba desire, everything she asked. So King Jesus, the greater Solomon, the greater son of David, who reigns forever and ever, surely will meet each and every need of his child. Amen and it will be according to his riches in glory. So what have we seen? We've seen that the son of David, who will inherit the throne of David and reign forever and ever, he is the substance of the shadow, which was Solomon. He is the greater Solomon. Just as Solomon built God's house and shared God's throne, so Jesus built God's house, the church, and shares his throne with him. Just as Jesus is the greater son of David who built God's house and and shares his throne, he also invites us to share his throne with him. As he says to the overcomers in Revelation chapter 2. And lastly, Jesus, the king of peace, wants to do great things in our lives and he wants us to come to him and he wants to grant our requests. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for sending your beloved son Jesus, your Jedidiah, the son whom you love. We thank you that Jesus has received an eternal throne from which he reigns forever and ever. We thank you that we have died with him, that we have been buried with him, that we have been raised with him, and that we have been seated with him in heavenly places. We thank you for your forgiveness, for your restoration, We thank you that you were born as the Lamb of God who will take away all of our sins. So I just pray, Lord, as we go throughout this Christmas season, we will go forth rejoicing. We will come boldly to your throne like the Queen of Sheba, Lord. And Lord, that your glory would rest on all of us, Lord. That we would see this season as a time of rededication, just like the time of Hanukkah is, Lord. A rededication of your temple who is our lives, Lord. May we... Set our lives before you as a living sacrifice, Lord. And as as we are on our feet before you, as we are rededicated to you, Lord, I thank you you're going to do mighty things in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen, Amen. all right. Well, next Wednesday, make sure all you guys come next Wednesday. It's going to be an awesome joint service with two other churches who meet here at the facilities. It's going to be a great Christmas service. Christmas worship, we're going to have some fellowship in the gym afterwards. Um.